Scholars Program, which we are not accepting applications for this year. I'm sure you've been hearing about all of these in more detail at earlier sessions. So how it works is after you submit your application in mid-January, we go through a review process and then we release decisions in mid-March. If you are offered um, admission within 24 hours, you'll get an email with your financial aid package as well. So you'll have all that information right away to make your decision before you respond to our offer in mid-April. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that there is no one right applicant for HDS. We are seeking to build a class with a wide range of experiences, interests, and preparation. Our applicants have a wide variety of career aspirations as well, um, which is why there is no one right applicant. It's so varied and you really want to be authentic to who you are. Don't tell us what you think we're looking for. We want to know who you are and why HDS is the right fit for you. We take a comprehensive review of your application because of that. We are not looking for a minimum GRE score or a minimum GPA. We're looking really holistically at everything. Who you are, what your experiences have been, what you want to do while you're here at HDS, and what you want to do when you graduate as well. Um, so please do not let a GRE score or a lower GPA keep you from applying. And again, don't hesitate to reach out to us and we're happy to have an individual conversation with you about how to put your best application forward given your specific academic profile and what you're interested in doing. For those of you interested in the PhD, the admissions committee is composed of faculty only that's handled separately by the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, but if admitted into the PhD program, you're a joint student with HDS and the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, but that application does not go through our office. Um, you are able to submit an application to us for a master's program and to the PhD program as well. But bear in mind that it's very rare for folks to be admitted to the PhD program directly without already having a master's. We only read applications once a year and you always start in the fall. Um, how many folks in the audience are looking to apply this year? Just to get a sense of who's in the room. All right. Anyone thinking like two or three years down the road? Great. Thank you. Is anyone interested in the doctoral program? All right, that makes my job easy. Um, so great, then you would all be applying directly into our office. Um, it's important to tailor your application based on what program you're applying into. And again, this is where we're here to help. So feel free to reach out to us and we can talk about how your interests match that program and tailoring it to that specifically. All right, and for, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm following Angela's notes, I'm sorry, this is, there we go. So again, everything goes um, through our online application form. Um, and here are all of the basics. So a really straightforward application form where you input all of your information, your, all of your academic transcripts, even any classes you took that were not part of a degree program. So any community college courses you took or if you transferred, even if your transfer credits appear on where you ended up earning your degree, we also need a separate transcript from where you originally earned those um, credits. $75 application fee. Bear in mind, we do offer a waiver if you have financial hardship. Um, the link to apply for that is in the application instructions. We also require a resume or a CV. Um, and use that strategically. If there's something that doesn't fit into your statement of purpose or you don't have another place to put it, in the application, you can maybe include that on your CV as well. There's no length 
um, requirement for that. So uh, the CV can be two or three pages um, and make sure you're including everything. So any professional accomplishments as well as the basic resume information, um, but that's really a chance to just include all of your accomplishments, awards, um, presentations, publications, etc. Um, statement of purpose, 1,000 words, please keep to the word count. Um, make sure you're tailoring this to Harvard Divinity School. Make sure you take out Yale Divinity School before you hit submit. <laughs> that happens every year. It won't keep you from getting admitted, but it's not our favorite. Um, this is the most important part of the application. This is where you're setting your narrative for who you are as an applicant and why HDS, again, just really building your case. This is where you get to set the scene and then all of the other components of the application really bolster everything you're telling us in that statement of purpose. And then for the MDiv and MTS, there's also a supplemental essay. It's 500 words. We do not require a writing sample. So the statement of purpose, excuse me, the statement of purpose and the essay are really your opportunities to show off your excellent writing skills. And the essay in particular is a good place for you to show us that you can think and write clearly and concisely about a pretty straightforward question in the field. Um, and those questions are embedded in the application. So just if you have any questions about that, open the application and take a look at what those are. It's only 500 words, so it's really short. Um, and the statement of purpose should really, you should be weaving in the other components of your application. Don't just enumerate what's on your resume or CV or what's in your transcripts. So really pull together the highlights from all of those different things. Um, there are three letters of recommendation. Again, you're going to want to think um, strategically about who those letters are from, depending on what program you're applying to. If you're applying to the MDiv, make sure that you have someone who can speak to your ministerial interests and however you're thinking about that. It is very important to have academic letters of recommendation. If you've been out of school for a really long time, then again, we can have a conversation about who might be appropriate people who can talk about what um, transferable skills you might have that would fit the gap that you're missing from not having that academic letter of recommendation. Um, your official scores, if you need to submit a GRE score or a TOEFL or IELTS, we do need those again by the deadline. You can self-waive the GRE in the application if you already have an advanced degree and that degree has already been conferred by the deadline date. So if you already have some other degree, just check that off in the box, no problem. If you are in process of another degree, you can apply in another advanced degree, excuse me, you can submit a GRE waiver request and we'll review that in our office. We recommend that you submit that as soon as possible because if that request is denied, then you'll still have time to take the GRE and apply in this application cycle or whenever you end up applying. Um, if you do not have any advance work, you do need to submit a GRE score. But again, that's just one data point out of many, so don't let that be the one thing that keeps you from applying this year, whatever year, if that's what you want to do. So just make sure that you are planning ahead for that GRE. You need to take it by the end of December for us to get it in time for the application deadline. So here's some, oh yes, go ahead. So the question was, um, in terms of the writing sample, we don't require one, but is it optional? Uh, no, we will not accept that. We will only accept uh, the components of the application. Um, we're going to do a Q&A at the end, so I'm going to pause you there and we'll come back. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, so I, I'm going to wrap up soon and turn it over to Beth and then we'll do a Q&A. 
I just wanted to talk about some of our resources um, and how you can learn more and go more into depth. Uh, we have open office hours today from 4 to 5, so right after this, come on over to Divinity Hall. If you have more questions after this experience, shoot us an email and we can set up a time to chat on the phone and again, talk about your specific application and talk through all of the different resources and how you can put your best foot forward. Um, and you can contact the admissions staff, email us at admissions, and then you can also talk to a current student. And I think this is a really valuable resource. So if you email ask underscore, underscore students at hds.harvard.edu, um, that you can tell them a little bit about what your questions are, what your interests are, and they can help connect you to a current student who has similar interests. So if you have a specific area of interest, that's a really good way to learn more about what the resources here at HDS are for that particular interest, and then that's really useful to bring into your application as well. So just be strategic in thinking about how to get the information that will help you put forward your best application. All right, so I'm going to turn it over to Beth, and then we'll take all of the questions at the end. Thank you. Hello. Welcome. I'm Beth Flaherty. I'm the Director of Financial Aid here at HDS. Uh, in addition to me, the whopping staff of two of financial aid, uh, myself and my colleague, Julie Field. Julie is actually going to uh, run out probably a d couple of minutes before the session ends to head back to our office at Divinity Hall because we will also be having uh, open office hours from 4 to 5, and we're happy to answer questions there as well. And as Sarah said, we'll have a Q&A at the end. One thing I just caution about the Q&A, especially when it is in regards to financial aid, is if your questions are very, very, very specific to you and your circumstances, um, a Q&A probably is not the best opportunity for us to address that. So what I would recommend is come on over for office hours if you're available. If you're going to be in the Boston-Cambridge area uh, later on this week and want to set up an appointment, we'd love to have you come in uh, and talk to us if that's not possible. We're also always happy to have phone conversations with students throughout the whole application process um, so we can answer your questions as best as possible. So we're going to run through a bunch of things, um, and I do want to leave some time so we're going to kind of go move th through things quickly. But we're going to talk about the process for applying for financial aid, how we determine your eligibility, um, what the cost of attendance is, so what does it, what is a basic estimation of what we think it will cost you to come here for an academic year, um, the types of financial aid we have available, a sample financial aid package, uh, talk about how are you going to fund what you don't um, receive in financial aid, what are the other resources, um, how to look for private scholarships, and then we're going to talk about proctor applications, which is very similar to um, RAs uh, that many of you might have done in undergrad, um, because we get a lot of students that ask questions about that, and so we'll tell you what office you can look to for those applications. So in terms of applying for financial aid, and we're talking, um, let me just ask, is there anybody here interested in the Masters of Theology, the one year? Okay. So <clears throat> most of what I'm going to talk about the Master of Theological Studies is two years. The, okay, Master of Theology. So the, the THM is generally for students that already have a previous master's and are just coming to do like one year of focus work or a project. Um, so I'll assume everyone else is either looking at MTS or MDiv. So at HDS, we offer merit-based aid and need-based institutional grant support. Um, and students receive either the merit component or they receive the need-based. They don't receive one uh, they don't receive both. Um, the merit is a very small portion of the aid that we have to give out. 
Um, we're going to offer our incoming class, probably only about 10% of the incoming class will be offered merit aid. Now what I can say about merit aid is every student that applies and completes an application to HDS is considered for merit aid. But because that's the small pool of the funding that we have to give out, um, we have many people that would easily qualify for it and only a few slots to fill. So what we say is hope for the merit and plan for the need-based aid. Um, because you want to make sure that you're putting yourself in the best position to make sure that you're going to get some sort of aid, hopefully, if you meet the qualifications. Um, the merit decisions are made by the admissions committee. I want to think this is an important thing to note is that no one on the admissions committee knows who's applying for financial aid. It's a need blind process. Uh, your financial aid application is completely separate. The two of them don't meet. Uh, the only time they meet is when we know that you've been accepted. Um, so that we can award students. Um, but no one on the admission side, students often get nervous about that and think, I won't get accepted if they think I have a lot of need or if th will they only accept me because they think I can pay for myself. No one on the admissions side knows what's happening there. Um, so you can feel confident that if you're being admitted, you're being admitted on your own merits. Um, there is no application for applying for merit aid. Uh, the admissions committee is making those determinations, and those are final. So if you were to get a merit, you would get notification in your admissions letter. After the admissions letter, there'd be another letter following saying, congratulations, you've been offered a merit. Um, but we really strongly suggest that all students apply for need-based financial aid. So the need-based financial aid does require an application, and we do have a deadline. Um, and in our case, the deadline is not a suggestion, it's a rule. Um, so our deadline is February 15th, 2019. We will start sending out financial aid application instructions um, sometime in mid-January. Um, once most of you have completed your admissions application, then once we know you submitted it, we'll send you information about how to apply for financial aid. On rare occasions, these emails will go to your spam accounts. If you've never looked at your spam mail, this would be a great time to clean it out and start looking at it um, because on occasion it might go there. Um, and we want to make sure that you're getting the information. If you have not heard from us by the very end of January about a financial aid application, please be in touch with us and we'll make sure that we get it we sent out to you um, because we want to make sure that you have the opportunity to apply. Um, so if students are, oops, sorry, there's a typo. It's not need-based, it's need-based. Um, for domestic students, so those are US citizens or eligible non-citizens, uh, students will need to fill out a FAFSA. Have any of you filled out a FAFSA before? I'm sure many of you are actually heads nodding. So that's your free application for federal student aid. Um, and that's required for all US citizens or eligible non-citizens, so generally students that have um, permanent residency. So you'll fill out the FAFSA and you'll also fill out an HGS application for financial aid. That gives us some additional information about um, your financial situation. Uh, if you have recently become aware or you already know that you're in default of a federal uh, Title IV loan, so if you had loans before and they went into default, it's important uh, that you understand that we don't typically award grant aid and we cannot award federal aid, so that would be work studying student loans to students currently in default. If you have a default situation, 
that you're currently working on, it's a great idea to have a conversation with us so that we know where you are in the process and we can advise you about what the um, probability for getting aid would be once that gets resolved because defaults can sometimes take quite a while to get figured out. For those of you that are filling out the FAFSA, you can begin submitting it after October 1st of 2018. You don't need to run and do it right away, um, but you do wanna make sure that you submit it prior to our February 19th uh, deadline so that we get all of your application materials on time. Um, oftentimes we have students that complete the FAFSA and not the HGS application or the HGS application, not the FAFSA, but we have to have both applications uh, to consider you for aid. Um, when you fill out the FAFSA, you're using your prior, prior year's tax return. So you're using the 2017 completed tax return. And we strongly encourage applicants, if you can, to use the IRS data retrieval tool. That will basically feed your tax information right into your FAFSA. Um, and that makes the process much easier. You're not required to use it, but if you don't, um, and oftentimes we might need follow-up information because um, it's not coming directly from the IRS. There are some cases where a student actually is not eligible for it, and that's fine. Um, but if you can use the IRS data retrieval tool, we highly recommend that. Um, as I said, we'll send you the institutional application. It's not uh, a particularly difficult form, but we do need you to fill it out. Um, and you will want to keep track of like your end of year asset statements um, because that will be asked on the HGS application. We will not automatically ask to see copies of your taxes or your W-2 forms, but it's a good idea that you know how to access them. Um, you have that information or you'll request a tax transcript um, if we require it, but don't send that information ahead. We'll contact you if we need it. And again, this is just making sure that you have everything in by the deadline. Um, if there was anyone in the THM program, we don't offer institutional aid for that program, but we do uh, allow students to apply for federal aid. So that would be um, students that are US citizens or eligible non-citizens can fill out a FAFSA and be eligible for student loans and or federal work study. Um, I think I skipped a slide here, but for any of you that are international students, there we go. Um, you do need to fill out the HGS application, but you're obviously not filling out the FAFSA because you're not able to. Um, so the FAFSA deadline, uh, the um, HGS deadline is the same, February 15th, 2019. And international students are eligible for both the merit consideration and the need-based consideration. Um, one mistake that we find that students make is that they assume they won't be accepted, so they just don't apply for financial aid. And then they get this great letter that says, yes, we'd love to have you at Harvard, and then contact us that day. Um, and that's often a little too late in the process. Uh, we will often have to put people on a wait list for funding, and sometimes we can't go to the wait list. So it's really important that you're applying um, on time to make sure that you have the best uh, possible option of getting financial aid. Um, also, there are some students that just make an assumption, I didn't get financial aid as an undergrad, so I shouldn't apply. Um, but the truth is, is at the graduate level, you're all considered independent graduate students. So even if you're 22 or 23 years old, because you've graduated with a bachelor's degree and you're in a graduate program, we're not looking at your parental information, we're looking at your information. So don't make the assumption that you don't qualify. Even if you think the chances are that you might not qualify, I would highly recommend fill it out. Like Julie and I often say to students, 
let us decide if you're going to receive it. But put in your application, and then we'll determine whether or not you're eligible. But just don't make that assumption. Um, give yourself an opportunity. Unless you've just won like mega millions. In that case, you're not going to qualify for aid, and it's okay not to apply. But in pretty much every other case, I would recommend. So when we determine your eligibility, we're looking at your cost of attendance for the academic year, and then we're looking at what your estimated family contribution is, and that information is coming both from the FAFSA and also from the HGS supplemental form that you're filling out. So just because your EFC and your FAFSA might show one number doesn't necessarily mean that that's the number that we're going with. We're also looking at supplemental information that's not necessarily included on the FAFSA. Um, and then when we subtract your EFC from your cost of attendance, that tells us what your need is. Um, the next question that we often get is, what kind of grant aid are you offering to students? Um, and in the need-based uh, financial aid program, which is where the bulk of our money is coming from, and really, philosophically, we want to give as much of our funding based on financial need as possible. Um, because we want to make sure that we're funding students that really couldn't be here without this type of financial support. Um, we do have a merit program. Many of our peer institutions are actually strictly merit. Um, so we do have a small pool of that, but really the bulk of our money is going to come through the need-based program. Um, beginning with the 1920 academic year, we'll have three tiers of need-based grants. Uh, the bottom tier would be three-quarter tuition, so that's 75% of tuition. Uh, there'll be a full tuition grant. And then um, a much smaller pool, but there is a pool of full tuition with an $8,000 stipend for the academic year for the highest need students. So these are our particularly needy students. Um, and that's a challenge to figure out because on paper, a lot of students look needy. So there's a lot of components that we're looking at um, to determine what the levels are. But in most cases, most students will come in with about 75% um, tuition grant. Not everybody, but a good portion. Um, but of course, if you don't apply, you won't get anything, so, um, unless you get merit. So really make sure that you're applying. Um, for those that are uh, apply that receive the merit-based, they would get a full tuition grant and a modest stipend to help with living expenses, and those range from eight to $10,000, um, depending upon the type of uh, merit award that the student is given. Um, historically, about 90% of our students are receiving need-based aid. Um, because this tier is a little bit different for us this year, we used to have a 50% grant, and we're not going to have that anymore. We think um, it won't be at 90%. It could be more in the 80 85% range. But as you can see, a large number of our students are receiving some sort of institutional grant support. So, what does it cost to attend HDS? This is the magic question. Um, the tuition here is probably the lowest amongst all of the Harvard graduate schools. Um, but it's still, you know, it's not insignificant. So our tuition, these are this year's rates because we have not confirmed them for the 2019-20 academic year. Um, but we'll have that information uh, out to you certainly by the time you're admitted so you know exactly what the costs are. Um, but for this year, it's the tuition is 28,944. The Blue Cross Blue Shield is 3,364. The University Health Services fee is 1,178. I know oftentimes students say, "Why are there two? Um, one is the Blue Cross Blue Shield. That's the individual plan. That plan can be waived if you have your own plan or you're covered under another plan, and we just deduct that from your cost of attendance. 
Uh, the university health services fee is if you get sick on campus and need to see a doctor, that fee is not waivable. Um, and that fee also covers um, mental health care as well. Um, we also have a student activities fee of $70. And then we have our best estimates for food, housing, books, and miscellaneous expenses. Um, so food is about 46.13, housing is about 11,945. So that is the high 1300s or so um, in terms of what we estimate for a month. Um, books are $1,240, although many students can get books for less and some spend much more. Um, and then miscellaneous is kind of everything else that's not covered. So the total cost of attendance for this year is $56,336. Now there's a couple of things I want to call your attention to. One is this is a nine month budget um, and you live for 12 months. So you do have to figure out what's going to happen in the summer because HDS is a school that only enrolls fall and spring. We don't have an official period of enrollment in the summer. We do have a summer language program, but those courses count towards your fall full-time enrollment. And so we can't offer things like student loans or grant um, for students that are here in the summer. So you do have to figure out how to cover that yourselves. Um, these are estimates. So this is a basic approximation of what we think it costs to live in the area. Some of our students can do this for much lower and some will choose to do it for much higher. Um, I think the living expense budget is always the part that gets students um, because in some parts of the country, you can rent a whole house for $600 and here you can't get a closet. Uh, so it's about being realistic. And I think this is actually a great opportunity for you to start looking at what are rents in the area, not just here, but any school that you're interested in attending so that you get a sense of what will it cost for me to attend. Um, and keeping in mind, our estimates are based on just the student um, and assuming that a student is going to live not necessarily right in Cambridge proper, but in the surrounding area and living with a roommate. In some cases, a student, for whatever reason, won't. Um, or you may be coming with a family and that's not possible um, to have other roommates. And so on a case-by-case -case basis, we can sometimes increase uh, the rent, but we do have a cap on it. We haven't determined what the cap will be for the 1920 school year. Um, but we're happy to have those conversations with students as they come up. Um, we have some students that are really great at budgeting and managing their money. And we have some students that have never done this before. Um, so I think it's important to really start, if you've never done a budget, this is a great time to do it. If you've done a budget, but you kind of look at it once every four or five months and you don't actually keep to it, this would be a great time to start experimenting. Um, because I think many of us find we spend money in ways that we never actually thought we did. Um, I did this several years ago, but you know I've been going to all sorts of budget trainings for like 20 years now. And so one month I tracked every penny I spent and found out that I spent $105 at Starbucks in a month, which is not, if you ask me how much, I would say 20 bucks. Um, but when I did that, it really brought my attention to, oh, I actually spend money in a lot of ways um, that I probably don't mean to. And it doesn't mean that I don't go to Starbucks anymore, because I do, um, and Dunkin' Donuts, because if you're in Massachusetts, you've got to go to Dunkin' Donuts. Um, but it's in my budget now. So I have a certain amount for that every month. Um, but I think it's just good to like figure out what do you think the cost would be, um, and what is your financial plan? Because I think that's where a lot of students get into trouble. Um, we often find students that rent an apartment not thinking about whether or not they actually have the means to pay for the apartment until after they've signed the lease and then find 
um, they don't actually have enough money to cover that, and that puts them in a difficult position. So I think pre-planning, um, and also having conversations with us, and asking us, and asking fellow students, like, where did you find a great housing deal, and what town did you look to? Um, that will help you as you go along. The types of aid that we have available are uh, Harvard University grant aid, so a grant is gift money. It does not have to be repaid. Um, <coughs> We have, we participate in the direct federal and subsidized Stafford loan. There are unfortunately no subsidized student loans for graduate students anymore, um, but we do have the, the Stafford loan program. Uh, you can borrow, those are guaranteed student loans, so the only way you can be denied for the loans are if you're previously, if you're in fault of a previous Stafford loan. Um, the other issue would be if you have hit your aggregate borrowing eligibility. So. The most you can borrow through the unsubsidized Stafford loan, or actually all Stafford loan, is $138,500. So that seems like a lot, but if you already have an undergraduate degree and maybe one other master's, you could be um, not necessarily at the cap, but your borrowing amounts could be a little bit higher. So it's important to keep an eye on that. Um, and if you've never looked at how much you owe for student loan, because sometimes people don't want to know, um, but I think it's a great idea to go to NSLDS, which is the National Student Loan Data System, um, and you can use your FAFSA PIN number, uh, your federal PIN number, and that will allow you to create, a, um, create, create an account so you can see exactly all of your federal loans. Um, it's just a good idea to sort of know where you're coming from. And I also think that helps you make a good decision about um, how do you feel about the debt you have, how do you feel about com contemplating more debt, um, and if you've never had a conversation about how you feel about debt, this would be another great time to do that. Um, there are some students that don't worry about it, and there are some students that have extreme anxiety over borrowing like $5,000 for the whole three-year MDiv program. Like I had a student who had more anxiety over that $5,000 than doctoral students who had much more significant debt. So a lot of it is about knowing yourself, who you are, how you feel about debt. And then also I think it's a great time to start thinking about what are your future career paths and what they might pay um, so that you have a sense as to what your starting salary might be. And knowing that many of you have multiple options that might be out there, um, start looking at all of them. Like what if I worked for a nonprofit or what if I end up with a doctoral degree and I'm gonna be uh, a faculty um, professor. So I think it's a good idea to just kind of have a sense. Um, I'm also happy at any time to talk to students about this. So if you want to call me up and say, I have this much in de debt, and I think I might have to borrow this much more, what would that look like in terms of payments? I'm happy to do loan repayment calculations with you, um, either in person or on the phone, or just kind of talk you through the process. Um, so please reach out to us if that's something that's um, causing you concern or just something that you're curious about. Um, we also participate in the Federal Work Study Program. Um, this is particularly helpful to, uh, I would say, probably more than 50% of our students are working under work study. You can work up to 20 hours a week. Um, this is for students that have um, eligibility. This is a need-based program, so you'd have to have financial need, but the large majority of our students do. And you can earn um, up to $5,000 for the academic year. Uh, for those of you who are interested in the MDIP program and We'll be doing field ed. The large majority of the field ed placements are paid through work study, so that's an opportunity to get paid for what's a degree requirement. Um, you can work up to 20 hours a week under work study. That's, um, I would say, 
$5,000 isn't really going to get you 20 hours a week, um, more in the 10 to 12 hour range, but there are some offices that will pay you up until you hit your work study allocation and then they can switch you to their regular payroll so you could potentially earn more than the $5,000, uh, but that's a conversation to have with any potential employers. Uh, and then we also participate in the Direct Graduate Plus Loan Program. So that would be student loans that would allow you to borrow above um, what you're receiving for grant, work study, and Stafford loans. And so it would be the combination of all of those minus your cost of attendance and you could borrow up to that. Um, graduate plus loans are more expensive. They're a higher interest rate and a much higher loan origination fee. Um, so it's something to keep in mind. Um, and when we do grad plus loans, we always like to talk to students before we go through the process. Um, there is a credit check required for direct plus loans. Um, unlike the Stafford loan, which is guaranteed. So not every student will qualify for Grad Plus, but many will because it's a fairly lenient credit check. It's really looking mostly at um, 90 days adverse payments, bankruptcies, liens, and charge-offs. It doesn't really look at debt-to-income ratios. Now, just because you get approved for a Grad Plus doesn't necessarily mean that that's the best um, loan to take out. So again, we have conversations. And students are also always welcome to borrow private loans. If you feel like you have exceptional credit and you could get uh, a better interest rate that's lower than what the um, federal loan program is, you certainly are able to go through that process as well. So this is just a sample idea of what a financial aid package might look like. Um, but essentially, this is for a student that we're going to give uh, a 75% need-based tuition scholarship to. So for this year, it would be $21,708. And then you see that we list an unsubsidized Stafford loan of 8,500. Now what we do is we only package you with what we call the base grant, which is the great base loan, which is 8,500. You can borrow up to 20,500 depending upon um, you know, what your other scholarship looks like and any outside resources, um, any private scholarships you might be getting. But we don't pre-package all of your loan eligibility because we really want students to think long and hard about what makes sense for them. Our fear is if we just package you with a bunch of loan money, you'll assume that that's what you need to borrow instead of um, doing your budget and figuring out what you need. You certainly have additional borrowing eligibility available to you, um, but it won't be on your original award letter. And also work study is not on your original award letter because we have students request their work study eligibility we have a certain allocation from the university as a whole, and we want to make sure we're giving it to students that really intend to work. Um, but it's been like probably 12 years since I've had to turn a person away that wanted to do work study and had eligibility. Um, so typically the funding is there if students want to do it, if they have the need-based eligibility. So this would be your initial award would be $30,208. So then it's a good time to think about where are the other costs gonna come from? So if our cost of attendance is 56,336, uh, the total award is $30,208. The total left to fund on paper is $26,128. Now keep in mind, that might actually not be what you have to fund um, because you might have found an incredible housing deal. And so you might be able to live for much less than what our budget is saying. Um, so that's why it's important to really think about um, what your housing options are going to be. And obviously, you're not going to have that figured out at this point, but it's a good idea to start shopping around. Um, so how will you fund the difference? Will you get a work-study job? Do you have your own savings to contribute? Will you borrow additional loans? Uh, have you applied for private scholarships? Or 
are you interested in being a first year proctor? So finding private scholarships, this is the leading question that I get is, I don't want to borrow loans and I'll take whatever grant money is offered and I'm interested in a work study, but I don't want to borrow loans and I would like you to find the private scholarships for me. And as a two person office, that is not possible. Um, as much as we'd like to help you, we don't have the ability to do that. And quite honestly, you're gonna be the beneficiary of these private scholarships. So it's worth your time and your inclination to start looking for them. We do have a, a, a webpage on our website for outside scholarships. It's a very small smattering of what's available out there. It's what we know of. Um, but we would always encourage students to look there first, but cast a wide net. Talk to um, your alma maters, talk to uh, faculty, talk to family and friends about any social organizations that they might be involved in where they uh, might know about private scholarships. Talk to other students to figure out how they've gotten funding for programs um, because if you could get some additional dollars in addition to what HCS offers you, that certainly would help you significantly. Um, also, if you're in the MDiv program, you can look at uh, fteleaders.org. That's the fund for theological education. So they have some of their own fellowship programs, but they also have something called the Fund Finder, where you can pop in diff you know, basic demographic information about yourself, and it will give you a listing of some scholarships that might be available. I'll tell you that most of them are church-related and often Christian. Um, denominations, but it's a good source to look at. Um, if you are able to get an outside scholarship, HGS applies that first towards your unmet need, and then um, if that scholarship was so large that we had to start reducing other forms of aid, we would reduce uh, loans first, then work study. The last thing we would try to reduce is your institutional grant, um, and it's very rare that we've ever had to do that. I can think of less than a handful in the 13 years that I've been here. Um, but um, you should ask that question of every place that you're applying because there are some schools that will do a dollar for dollar reduction of that grant um, if it's an outside. There are some that will let you bring the whole amount in. So I think that's just a good tip to find out how do schools handle private scholarship. Okay, and that's just a print screen of what our private scholarship site looks like. Uh, I just, I haven't, put this in the presentation in previous years, but we have a lot of students that ask about it, and we've actually had a large number of students that have become proctors. So a proctor is very similar to an RA, um, which many of you might have done in your undergrad or maybe other graduate programs. Um, but this is to serve as um, a first-year proctor for first-year students at Harvard College. Um, it's a very competitive program, um, but if you get into the program, you get uh, free room and board for the academic year. So it's really a significant savings. Um, you have to have a bachelor's degree or equivalent. You have to be enrolled as a de degree candidate. And if you're not, if you're obviously in the process and you don't know if you've been accepted yet, they have information on their website about how you would notify them when you get um, accepted, but you could still be considered um, in the pool as an applicant. Um, the preference is for students who can give them two or more years of service, but that's not a requirement. Um, and you should have excellence of competence, uh, evidence of confidence. You should be excellent too, just in general. <laughs> um, sensitivity, maturity, and judgment in dealings with peers, professional colleagues, and younger men and women. 
um, and commitment to learning about the academic and extracurricular opportunities available to first year students at Harvard. Um, this is all through the freshman dean's office, um, so you can check their website. And I'm sorry, I thought I put the URL on here, but I did not. Um, but I would contact them. The deadline um, is in January, and the application is generally available in December. And I also saw there's a place for you to sign up to be put on the, the list to be notified when the application is available. Um, so I would certainly recommend that option for any of you that think that you might qualify. Um, again, we're going to have office hours over in Divinity Hall, second floor. We are actually in the admissions and financial aid suite. So if you need to see both of us, you can tag team. It's very convenient. Um, if you have questions during the application process, please do not hesitate to reach out. The biggest mistake students make is they make assumptions and they decide what something is going to be without actually asking us. Um, and I think oftentimes students are afraid to ask a question because they think it's going to be stupid. And the truth is that there are rarely, very rarely do we get stupid questions. And if this question truly is stupid, we're not going to tell you. So you should feel free to ask us whatever you want. Um, and then we'll give you the best answer we can. Um, but just don't assume that certain things are going to happen or won't happen. Um, because you could find yourself in a situation where you've been accepted and now you find out um, you, you're not in the best position to attend financially. Um, if it's easier to email us, you can email us at financial underscore aid at hgs.harvard.edu. Um, and again, Julie and I are happy to answer emails, talk to people in person and on the phone. And so we'll have a little bit of time for questions. Um, can we start with the one back there, Jamal? Okay, wonderful. Hi. Uh, once someone's expect, accepted, uh, can they defer the program if anything comes up in the family? Sure. So we don't have an official uh, deferment program or anything like that. We review them on a case-by-case -case basis. We um, don't approve very many every year, so we really encourage you to apply the year that you do intend to enroll that following fall. But if something comes up, if there's a medical issue or an unexpected change in your circumstances or something else, do contact us, and we are happy to review those on a case-by-case -case basis. for need-based but what usually do they look for even while considering for merit scholarships one and number two I'm just curious what does um, eligible non-citizens usually consist of sure so that's the magic question that's the question I get asked more than anything else is how do I get a merit financial aid award and the truth is I can't tell you um, because it really varies from year to year uh, I will tell you that the admissions committee takes a really holistic approach to looking at your applications. So people that get merit awards, typically, they're not always the people with the 4.0 and the stellar GRE scores, although sometimes they are. But they're often the students that have really strong academics, really good letters of recommendation, who can talk about who they are as a student and a person. Um, and students who know how to speak about themselves, um, articulate why HGS makes sense for them and what they can bring to the community and what the community can give to them. Um, but there is no cookie cutter approach. Um, so that's why we always say hope for merit, but plan for need based. Um, and then that way you sort of have a guideline as to what you think the minimum grant would be. And then if it's better than that, then that's fantastic. Um, and then an eligible non-citizen is usually a US permanent resident. Um, so someone that has what used to be referred to as a green card 
um, but has permanent residency. Um, when does the application, when does the application window and um, when do we know, when are we told um, whether we got in or not? Sure. So the application for financial aid will um, open sometime in mid-January. We will email students. Uh, if you don't hear from us by the end of January, you should email us just to make sure that we sent it out to you um, because all applications are generally out by then at the latest. Um, and then the deadline for us is February 19th. We uh, have a tight turnaround, which is why we really require um, students to apply by the deadline. So if you are admitted into the program, you'll be notified in mid-March. Um, and generally within 24 hours of being notified that you've been admitted to the program, if you have um, qualified for either merit-based aid or you've applied for and qualified for need-based aid, you'll get a separate notification from the financial aid office to go on and uh, view your financial aid award letter. So you'll get that notification within 24 hours so that you have plenty of time to make an informed decision. This may be a stupidly simple question, but when does school start in the fall? Um, orientation is usually the last week of August, and then classes usually start right at the end of August, early September. Uh, is your financial uh, aid package for one year or for two years? Does it take into account what you spend in the first year? Uh, it, thank you for asking that because I should have um, put that in the presentation. We essentially what you get for institutional grant aid is what you should expect to receive for the length of your program. So um, you do have for in the need-based program you have to reapply each year. In the merit-based you don't have to reapply unless you're wanting to get work study or federal loans. Um, but in need-based you have to reapply each year and as long as you're demonstrating the same level of need um, you would get the same grant. The difficult part is that if your financial situation goes down, uh, we don't have the means to increase your grants because we're making commitments to students um, because we, we're not a bait and switch school. So we don't wanna say, yeah, you can have this great package year one and then all of a sudden the funding is significantly less in the second year. We feel like that's, that's not fair um, and you need to be able to have a basic idea of what you should expect. Um, one area I would say where we can do a little consideration is, let's say you applied by deadline and we determined you not to be eligible for need-based aid, but there was something that either you put um, accidentally on the application that you shouldn't have. One example that comes to mind is, we don't ask for students to tell us their retirement. Um, if you have something in a retirement account like a 401k or a 403b or an IRA, on the institutional application we specifically ask you not to include that but we had a student several years ago that listed that as investments um, and then had a conversation with us and in the conversation uh, it came up that that was actually retirement funds and she was able to provide us with documentation that that was actually in a 401k and in that case we were able to exclude that and um, reconsider for institutional aid. Um, so. But the good side is that you should be able to expect this for the length of the program as long as you stay in the program that you apply to. Um, there have only been, in the 13 years I've been here, there have only been three instances where a student's uh, situation has changed so significantly in the positive that we've actually reduced the grant aid, and that was in cases um, one student inherited 
uh, a fully paid off uh, apartment building um, and two other people had um, married someone with incredible assets and income. Um, so, but we don't do that in a bubble. We would just never arbitrarily look at that and just assume we know everything. We would um, talk to the student first. In all cases, we had a conversation about what the situation was. Um, and in all three cases, they were understanding of the decision that we made. Um, but we just don't do it arbitrarily. And Julie and I, even for students that look on paper that um, they might not quite meet the eligibility for the need base loan. We do go back and look at those files again before we send out final decisions to make sure that there isn't something that we don't know about. Um, and then we also would say to students, if there's something about your situation that you think is significantly different from when you filed your 2017 taxes or something that has come up recently in the last couple of months, you are always welcome to send that as an addendum um, in an email to financial aid underscore aid at HDS. And we recommend you do that after you submit your financial aid application. And we will put that with part of your application. We'll review that information. I am so sorry, everyone. Think I just I have to cut us short because we have to keep the, the program moving. First of all, thank you so much to Beth and Sarah for joining me. Thank you so much.